Return with me to Exodus chapter 3, where we took our scripture reading earlier in the service. Exodus chapter 3. We have been seeing in these studies in Exodus how that God's deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage is the Old Testament's premier illustration of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That great historical event that we call the Exodus, the going out, the departure from Egypt, that event that happened somewhere close to 1446 B.C., so nearly 3,500 years ago, is an inerrantly recorded event that is arranged by the sovereign God of providence to be a pattern of our salvation. We've seen how that we and Israel had the same starting place. The misery of bondage that was inescapable and deserved. We've seen how we sh- there's a sharing of the motivating reasons. The reasons that God redeemed Israel are the same reasons that he redeemed us from sin. It's his free and sovereign grace. It's his covenant of grace. It's his compassion, his pity, to redeem sinners from the lowest depths. That's what motivated God in the redemption of Israel. That's what motivated God in our redemption. So this evening, what we're going to do is begin... Studying how God redeemed Israel. We're moving from the why, which was last week, to the how this week. And as we look at how God redeemed Israel from Egypt, we should gain insight into how he redeemed us. And this is a place where the Exodus event really serves us well to keep us balanced in our thinking about God's redemption. If I were to ask you the general question, outside of the context of Exodus, outside of the context of what you see as the bullet, the title in the order of worship this evening, just in general, if I were to ask you, How God redeems. How does God redeem? I think that most of you would thankfully give an answer that was focused on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and most likely his substitutionary work. His sacrifice in the place of sinners his bearing of sins in his own body. You would probably think of texts like, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And truly, that is how God redeems. That is, the the, the New Testament emphasis clearly falls on redemption by price. 
redemption by price, by a purchasing. And that the commodity that was used in that purchasing of sinners in their redemption is none other than the precious blood of Christ. And there is a substitutionary work. Okay, is that how Israel was redeemed from Egypt? Were they redeemed by price? Well, yes. Substitution is part of the story. Where is substitution in the story of the Exodus? It's the 10th plague and the Passover. And that provision that God had made so that if you put the blood of the substitutionary sacrifice on the door, then God would pass over that house and would not visit that house in judgment because the the sacrifice was punished in the place of the firstborn who was under the threat of execution. So truly it is certain that Israel is redeemed by substitution, by price. But is that what you think of first? If I had a group of children and I just simply asked them, How did God free the Israelites? How did he redeem Israel from Egypt? What would they say? Wouldn't their minds, and don't our minds as well, go immediately to not redemption by price, but redemption by power and by the ten plagues? We think of the redemption that was accomplished in the book of Exodus as a powerful, mighty rescuing of these people from their bondage. It wasn't so much a case of guilt as it was a case of bondage. And their redemption was not so much a redemption by price, but a redemption by power. And God sent those plagues in order to force the Egyptians to let them go. You see, the exodus, the how of this redemption, falls into two categories. It's a redemption by price, but it is even more conspicuously a redemption by power. And in that way, The Exodus narrative balances our understanding of redemption. Our minds typically think of redemption in terms of the price paid for redemption, and that is good. That is the New Testament emphasis. But we cannot neglect, brothers and sisters, that our redemption is also a mighty display of God's irresistible Power, the stretching out of his arm to rescue sinners who were in a bondage that they could never break themselves. And so as this evening we turn our attention away from the why of redemption to the how of redemption, Exodus reminds us that our redemption was a mighty display of irresistible power. And so our theme tonight is redemption by power. 
And my assumption is that as the Lord leads this coming week, our theme next week will be redemption by price, and we'll look at Exodus 12 and the Passover. We'll be looking all through Exodus, but I think a theme for this can be easily established from the end of chapter 3 here and verses 19 and 20. Exodus 3, verses 19 and 20. Where the Lord tells Moses, I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. That announcement of Israel's redemption focuses on the power of God, doesn't it? It pits Pharaoh's mighty hand, and it was a mighty hand, but it pits that mighty hand against the outstretched hand of Almighty God. And what God is going to do is he is going to make Pharaoh let them go. By smiting Pharaoh, by smiting Egypt with his hand. And after God smites them, Pharaoh will let them go, quite willingly. Contained in that announcement of God's power are two sub-themes that I want us to pick up on. And this will kind of be our structure this evening, these two sub-themes. First... There is the resistance of Pharaoh in that announcement, isn't there? There's the resistance in verse number 19. I am sure that he's not going to let you go. He's going to try to hold on to them with a mighty hand. But even in that resistance, there's a power, there's a display of the power of God, isn't there? Because that resistance over and over again, we're told in the Exodus narrative, was divinely orchestrated. He had control over that resistance completely. It was powerful. And then there's second in verse number 20, the mentioning of God smiting Egypt with wonders. And of course, that's a reference to the ten plagues. When he smote them with all his wonders that he would do in the midst of them. So there is the resistance of Pharaoh, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then there's the sending of the ten plagues. And this illustrates the irresistible power of God in redemption. And it is this divine power which gives hope to sinners who are fast bound in sin and nature's night. The great God of wonders is the God who can redeem. And the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. If you have been redeemed this evening, it is because of the saving strength of God's right hand. It is because it was a redemption by power. Redemption by power. And so we'll look at these two places, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and then the ten plagues. First of all, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You know that the work, that the narrative in Exodus, it's largely given to us in terms 
of a contest. There's a lot in the Exodus narrative that boils down to a contest. On one side is the Egyptian taskmasters. On the other side are the Hebrew slaves. On one side is the Egyptian pantheon of gods. On the other side is Jehovah. I am. But the most prominent contest in the narrative, you know, is that on one side there's Pharaoh, and on the other side there's Moses. And it's narrated to us like a contest. Pharaoh against Moses. But it really is no contest, is it? The divine record is clear that Pharaoh does not stand a chance in this contest. You see it clearly in Exodus 7. So let's turn over to Exodus 7 and see how this is borne out most clearly. Exodus 7 is when Moses makes his first appearance before Pharaoh. And you remember how he works a miracle in front of Pharaoh. Verse number 9, The Lord says to Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you. Then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And so what happens is Aaron throws his rod down, it becomes a serpent, but of course, by some sort of demonic activity, Pharaoh's magicians are also able to cast their staffs down, and they become serpents as well. But Aaron's serpent eats, kills, and eats Pharaoh's serpents. And it, and it can't be a coincidence that the very first time in Scripture that you have a miracle being done, this is the first miracle in Scripture, that this miracle comes at the beginning of this great pattern of salvation. And the miracle has to do with serpents being killed by the Lord's messenger. And that can't be a coincidence. Because right after the fall of man and the institution of the covenant of grace, where God announces that he is going to intervene and that he is going to bring sinners out of a state of misery and into a state of salvation by a redeemer, how does the Lord announce that plan of salvation? It's going to be a contest between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And Eve's seed will crush the serpent's head. A mighty display of power. So there's this miracle done in front of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh refuses to relent. He will not let the people go. And verse 13 gives us the cause of why he will not let the people go. And he, that being God, hardened Pharaoh's heart, 
that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh did not relent because God hardened his heart. And friends, if at the beginning of your contest you display enough power to influence the very heart of your opponent, you're not going to lose. If you have that kind of power, power to influence the heart of your opponent, you can't lose. You will win. And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a mighty display of God's irresistible power that the heart of the king is in his hand and he's going to turn it whithersoever he will. It's a display of power. That verse mentioned that this happened as the Lord had said. God had said he was going to do this. He said it up there in verse number 3 when he tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And even back at Mount Sinai in the burning bush, the Lord says to Moses, when you go to return to Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand, but I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. So God announced that he was going to do it, and then he did it powerfully, irresistibly. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. You look down here in verses 13 and 14, and this is a good place to point out to you that there are two different words used for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. In verse number 13, it says, And he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that word hardened speaks of something strong, a strong heart. It's an idiom for being stubborn. And then in verse 14, you have the word hardened used again, but it's a different Hebrew word. There it means a heavy heart. It's an idiom for a heart that does not function properly. It's grown heavy. Do you remember when Moses gave his excuse for why he could not speak to Pharaoh about Israel? He said something about his mouth. What's the word he used? He says, I have a slow tongue. I'm slow of speech. And that word slow is this word. It's a heavy not functioning properly kind of mouth, is what he says there in Exodus 4. A heavy heart is an insensitive, unresponsive heart. It doesn't respond as it should. And I suppose it is also good for me to point out to you what the heart is in the Bible. That the heart is the Bible's word for the totality of your inner person, your inner man. Your mind, your will, and your emotions are all bound up in your heart. So when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it was stubborn, it was insensitive. He failed to acknowledge God in spite of the evidence in front of him. It was a hardening of his mind. His emotions were stirred to frustration and anger. It was a hardening of his affections. His will 
obstinately refused to obey the Lord and to let the people go. It was a hardening of his will. Pharaoh's heart was an unresponsive, stubborn mind, will, and emotions. And then what people always want to do at this point, when they're confronted with Moses saying this 19 times, he talks about Pharaoh's heart being hard 19 times. Ten times, God did it. The other nine times, it's either passive, it was hard, or Pharaoh did it to himself. But ten times, God did it. And 19 times, it's a hard heart. Either one of those two words. What people want to do at this point is start to wrangle with God's sovereignty and human responsibility or divine determinism, but he's not the author of sin, and to talk about all these theological conundrums. And what gets lost in all of the wrangling in that is that Pharaoh's hard heart is just a description of everybody's heart. All we're talking about here is a fallen heart insensitive and stubborn, suppressing the truth, refusing to acknowledge God, rebelling against God's authority. That's me. That's me by nature. My heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and I don't know the half of it. What did God have to do to harden Pharaoh's heart? What did God have to do to make Pharaoh's heart like that? Nothing. The account of Exodus is not about a king who desperately wants to let the people go, but then, Pharaoh, but then God hardens his heart and he can't. Pharaoh's just doing what he wants to do. And as my esteemed seminary professor told us in seminary, God just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. That's all it means. He just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. And the irresistible power of God was on display when God let Pharaoh do what he wants. And then, in spite of giving Pharaoh every opportunity to do exactly what he wants to do, God wins anyway. That's power. Irresistible power power. And you know, there's a parallel here. There's a parallel between this and our redemption. Think of Pharaoh as illustrative of Satan. And in the accomplishment of our redemption, God let Satan be Satan, didn't he? He let Satan do what he wanted. Satan was doing his best to thwart the plan of redemption, and God let him do it. And when Jesus was condemned to crucifixion, when he collapsed that morning under the weight of his cross as he bore it on the way to Calvary, when he was fastened to the cross, and then that cross was dropped in with a thud into the hole in the ground, And Christ hung there until he died. And then his lifeless corpse was taken off the cross and put into a tomb. Satan rejoiced in those those hours. He rejoiced in the victory that he was accomplishing. 
Everything was going marvelously, Satan thought. It had done perfectly. He had executed a marvelous plan, and he was gleeful about it. He had entered the heart of Judas and had orchestrated the arrest. He had filled the hearts of the religious leaders with envy so that they would be unthwarted in their desire to have Jesus executed. He had successfully tempted Pilate so that he would condemn an innocent man. He was perfectly successful in his and his carefully laid out plans to kill Jesus the Messiah. And all the while, unbeknownst to him, he was accomplishing the very will of God. God just let Satan be Satan. Such is his irresistible power. And Satan fell into the pit that he himself had dug. He sealed his own fate by orchestrating the death of Christ. You see, God is so irresistible in his power that he could let Satan be Satan. He could use Satan to accomplish his own blessed ends. And then he could spoil principalities and powers and make a show of them openly and triumph over them by the very cross that Satan orchestrated. It was redemption by irresistible power, wasn't it? So even the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a demonstration of God's power, his power to redeem. But most conspicuously, in the Exodus narrative, you have the ten plagues, the smiting of Egypt and Pharaoh. And every one of those plagues was actually a direct frontal attack against one of the particular Egyptian gods. I don't want to take the time to confirm that to you. It would involve us in too much just secular Egyptian history and archaeology and source material and stuff. But each plague was aimed at a particular god. The god of life was the Nile River. The goddess of fertility in their pantheon was pictured as a frog. Another god was depicted as a flying beetle. There were several gods in their pantheon of strong gods that were pictured by bulls. There was the god of the sky who evidently betrayed them and sent hail. And there was the god of the sun but he was blocked out for three days by the power of Yahweh. There was Pharaoh himself who claimed to be a god, and yet even he could not save his own son, the heir to the tenth plague. And in quite a literal way, God was doing just what he said when he announced the plagues. He says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. He was executing judgment against the gods of Egypt in the ten plagues. The very word plague, it means to strike or to assault. The plagues were the smiting hand of God against Egypt. And the plagues left Egypt in complete disarray, didn't they? Just left Egypt in chaos. Egypt and Egypt's gods, and Pharaoh in particular, were shown to be utterly 
impotent. And chaos ensued in the nation. And Pharaoh was shown to be a weakling who was incapable of withstanding the irresistible power of the outstretched arm of God. And eventually God did have his way. And Pharaoh eventually relented. It was a redemption by power. The ten plagues, a redemption by power. And to see the significance of that, we have to remind ourselves of the role of Satan in our bondage. Satan had a personal role in our bondage to sin. When we think of our original condition, our natural condition, we think of our sin, we think of our guilt, we think of original sin that we have because of our solidarity with Adam, we think of our deadness in sins, we think of our hostility to God, but we too often fail to consider the satanic root of all of that that our redemption had to involve more than just giving of life. It had to involve more than just forgiveness of sins. That our redemption had to involve the defeat of Satan. We would not be redeemed if there were not a powerful destruction of Satan. Jesus taught this. He taught in Luke 11 about the need for conversion. And he put it this way. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and he divides his spoils. And there he pictures the human heart like a house that is domineered in tyranny by a strong man. And in order for there to be a change, there has to be the defeat of that strong man by a stronger man. Satan's that strong man. If we combined all of our strength against him, he would laugh. It would be nothing compared to him. He's compared to a roaring lion, to a warrior with fiery darts. He's compared to a dragon. He's strong because he possesses power and also because he is cunning in his craftiness. He knows how to adapt his temptations to my besetting sins. He discovers appropriate times to assail me. He knows all of my weak places. He's strong. And you know this by experience, don't you? If you've ever attempted to resist him, you know just how strong he is. Perhaps you've never experienced his strength. Perhaps you doubt this. And what is that but an evidence that your heart is still bound by him? That you're making no attempt to resist him. He's so powerful in your life, you make no resistance to him at all. Your thought life, your attitudes, your corrupt speech, your anger, your activity online. The only attempt you ever make at self-control is just to stay out of trouble. That's it. 
You're prayerless. You're disinterested in scripture. The stronger man's got you. And you're not even putting up a fight. And that's an evidence of just how strong and powerful he is in your life. And just how strong those chains are to your sin. Are you still bound by the strong man? Satan exercises bondage of the children of disobedience. He deceives them into cheerfully obeying him. He makes them reluctant to yield up themselves to the Prince of Peace. He claims the unconverted man as his own palace, and he considers himself a king reigning there. So if I was going to be redeemed, Satan had to be defeated. He had to be stripped of his power to keep me spiritually dead. You see, he was actively blinding my eyes. This wasn't some sort of just passivity. It wasn't just the state I was in. It, it, was, it was a whole lot more of a difficult condition than that. It was not just the state I was in. He was actively blinding my eyes. He was holding me in bondage by the fear of death. Hebrews 2 says that. He was working. He was energizing in the children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 says that. He was a strong man who claimed authority over my life. And I was captive under the power of darkness. He labored to darken and blind me. He worked in me according to his own will. He erected a throne in my heart, and he blinded my understanding, he corrupted my will, and he put me in a condition of absolute darkness. And he kept me separated from God. And he kept me unresponsive to God. And he had to be conquered. And he had to be destroyed if I was going to be redeemed. He had to be stripped of that power if a single soul was going to be redeemed. He had to be conquered. And the only hope of any sinner is the destruction of Satan's mighty grip. Because blind men that are trapped in darkness don't find their own way out. Blind men don't rescue themselves. They have to be delivered. They have to be made alive. The power that holds them in the state of death has to be annihilated. So there had to be a defeat, a disarming of Satan. And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did. He defeated Satan. He disarmed Satan. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And he loves to take the written record of my sins and to use them to accuse me and to condemn me, to call for my condemnation. But my sins were laid on Christ. And my sins were condemned in his flesh. So Satan no longer has a single thing on me. He's got no grounds of accusation. He's been disarmed. He was disarmed when my trespasses were nailed to the cross. And when, Satan, when Christ graciously forgave me of my trespasses, 
He spoiled, he disarmed Satan. He made a show of him openly. He triumphed over Satan in his cross. Satan's a strong man. But there is a stronger man who was infinitely stronger than the devil. There is a stronger man that has come upon Satan and overcome him and took from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divided his spoils. Jesus is that stronger man. All power is given unto him in heaven and in earth. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were made by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And what a picture it is. To think of Christ, the strong man, storming into the heart of a sinner, violently taking hold of Satan, grabbing his weapons from him, and thrusting him out, pulling off Satan's armor, throwing it out the window, taking Satan's own sword, snapping it over his knee, and stripping Satan so it's shamed and tosses him out in hatred of him. And then he looks all around the house, my own heart, and he claims all those things that Satan used to claim as his spoils, he claims them for himself. My eyes, they're his. My mouth, his. My hands, his. My mind, his. He claims all those spoils that Satan was exploiting and he makes them his very own. He finds all of the stuff that was littering the mantle and replaces them with the genuine articles, his own grace and blessings. No more mere pictures hanging on the walls, but actual faith, hope, and love are now going to grow in this house. And he takes the broom and he begins to sweep up everything in that house that no act of self-righteousness could ever sweep up. And he washes the house with his own cleansing blood and he makes it whiter than snow. That's a picture of redemption. A stronger man thrusting the strong man out and taking over that house and cleansing it. So cry out to the strong man, the one who's stronger than Satan, to come and to help you in your bondage. Cry out to the great deliverer. He will come. He was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. His name is Jesus. And he shall save his people from their sins. He's the captain of our salvation. Appointed to bring many sons unto glory. We are redeemed by the irresistible power of God. And there's likely someone here who needs to submit to that power. 
Don't be like Pharaoh, hardening your heart against him. When you do that, Satan has fooled you into thinking that you're acting independently. You're not acting independently when you harden your heart against the Lord. You're doing just what your taskmaster wants you to do. You're just walking in lockstep with your master, and you're down on your knees groveling because he's got you in his chains. Don't harden your heart. Don't just treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. What you need to do is humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Cry out to the Lord by reason of your taskmasters. Ask Him to stretch out His irresistible arm in saving power. And you'll know Him rescuing you from your miserable condition. It is the glory of Jesus Christ to show himself strong on behalf of those who cry out to him for deliverance. He is mighty to save. And we are saved by irresistible power. Some of you need to do this for the first time. And no doubt all of us need to do this for deliverance from our besetting sins. There are sins which have us in their grip. And you know what they are. Perhaps it is a sin of commission. Doing what God forbids. But it has you in its grip. Perhaps it is a sin of omission. Not doing something that God commands. And you're gripped by it. What do you do? Cry out to the mighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Exodus. Cry out to Him to show the saving strength of His right hand and to deliver you from that besetting sin, whatever it is. It's your only hope. Redemption from the tyranny of sin only comes by the irresistible, redeeming power of God Himself. But praise God, there is redemption by the power of God. That he breaks the power of reigning sin. And he sets the prisoner free. So may the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God that your whole spirit, soul, and body would be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. He is the mighty God, and he redeems with his irresistible 
power. Let's pray. Eternal God and our Father in heaven, we praise Thee for the power that You have so wonderfully displayed in our lives in delivering us from the bondage of sin. And oh Lord, will You continue to break its power in our lives? Will You continue to deliver us from the sins which do so easily beset us? Oh Lord, we need Your grace. And we need more of Your power in our lives. And our church needs more of the power of God in its very life. And so we pray, O mighty God, that you would come down in saving strength. Will you save souls that are captive to the devil? And will you sanctify unto yourself a holy people? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.